So one thing to look at looking forward, I think, will be who is going to be among the winners of this redistribution of the cards. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On January 28th, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger jointly announced that they were leaving the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. This is a regional economic and political union of most countries in West Africa. Citizens enjoy free movement across borders of ECOWAS member states, and many of its members share the same currency. ECOWAS also seeks to uphold democratic norms, and each of these three countries are led by military juntas. Now, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger are setting up a rival entity, called the Alliance of Sahel States. Joining me to discuss the significance of this joint decision to exit ECOWAS is Ornella Motoran, a researcher and practitioner who's been working in the Sahel and West Africa for nearly 15 years. She is currently a research fellow with the Netherlands-based Klingendal Institute. We kick off discussing the role of ECOWAS in West Africa particularly the important, albeit imperfect, ways it seeks to uphold democracy in the region. She then explains why these countries left ECOWAS and what this decision means for the region, for Africa, and for the world at large. And just one quick reminder to sign up for our newsletter as well at globaldispatches.org. It's a good way to access transcripts of these episodes and also other insights on international affairs written by me and others that I've commissioned. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with Ornella Moran of the Klingendal Institute. So can I have you introduce ECOWAS and explain its role in West Africa for listeners who might not be familiar with it? So ECOWAS is the Economic Community of West African States. This is a 15-member state organization that was founded in 1975 with the aim to promote economic integration in the West African region. 
It's also one of the building blocks, the so-called REX, Regional Economic Communities of the African Union. So it is the particular building block from the West African region. So the organization is headquartered in Abuja, Nigeria, and has a number of affiliate institutions such as the Investment Bank of the community located in other parts of the ECOWAS region. And it's probably fair to say that politically, at least, Nigeria is first among equals in ECOWAS just by dint of its sheer size compared to the other members. Yes, I think this is quite fair. As I mentioned, the headquarters are located in Nigeria. Nigeria does have a particularly high proportion of contribution when it comes to financial contribution. So it is the main contributor. And it also has a quite heavy weight in terms of both economic policy and political dynamics in the broader region, and especially through ECOWAS as an organization. So you mentioned earlier that ECOWAS was initially created to economically integrate the countries of the region. And I know membership also includes like the free flow of individuals across borders, not in a way dissimilar to, say, the European Union and Schengen Agreement type thing. Is that correct? This is correct. So um, ECOWAS has a free movement area which allows the citizens of each of the 15 countries to move freely from one country to the other, to establish themselves in other countries of the communities, and uh, to do business and to engage in work there. This free movement also applies to goods. So there are a number of economic privileges around, you know, the suppression of tariffs and things like that, that make this region more integrated. So whereas ECOWAS was initially created to foster the economic integration of countries in West Africa, in more recent years, it has also taken on a role that is decidedly more political to uphold democracy and democratic ideals among its member states. Can you explain a bit that transition and how that has you know, worked over the years? So. I think we could say that the main evolutions of ECOWAS are really a reflection of its time in a way. So when the organization was first created in 1975, this was shortly after the first petrol shock, when the economy was really the key point that was bringing the countries together. A little later, um, around the early 90s, when the first wave of democratization flooded over West Africa, and more and more countries started going into democratic systems, ECOWAS also followed this evolution and went from a really economic organization, also with mutual pact of non-aggression that was signed in 76, to a much more political organization that was now looking at setting up norms and standards for its member states in terms of governance, in terms of conflict management, in terms of democratization and the rule of law, and things like that. So this evolution has been entrained in the core treaty of ECOWAS in 1993, the year when a revised treaty was adopted with much more political turn right around the time, as I mentioned, of those democratization movements in West Africa. And 
a couple of things about that that I think is, is notable. One of the way in which it kind of enforces these democratic norms and good governance is through sanctions, right? If a country experiences some sort of anti-democratic upheaval, where it's a coup or something like that, ECOWAS has in the past imposed sanctions. So the sanctions as a prime policy tool has become paramount in recent years. And it's true that ECOWAS has done this even earlier in the past, but I think it's important to remember that ECOWAS has had a much more longstanding and broader engagement in promoting democratic norms in the region. So going back in time, for instance, in 2016, ECOWAS played a leading role in enforcing the results of the Gambian elections when then-President Yaya Jame did not want to recognize his loss. There are several other ways in which ECOWAS has been active in the democratic space. You know, this organization, along with the African Union, along with the European Union and a number of others, has almost systematically deployed election observation missions in its member states over the past decade. So there is much more to what ECOWAS has done or tried to do uh, in terms of democracy promotion than just the sanctions. But I think one of the things that the organization is getting a quite strong backlash for is its kind of double standards in this democratic promotion. So what do I mean by double standards? On the one hand, ECOWAS does insist on very formal and procedural democratic practices like holding elections in time and uh, not running military coups, which are all valid. But at the same time, the organization has not been very effective in stopping other forms of political abuses, such as, you know, incumbents manipulating constitutions in order to stay in power for third, fourth, or even fifth terms. These are some of the contradictions that have really weaken the moral high ground of this organization. I was earlier talking about election observations, for instance, but here again, on the outside, on the surface, these election observation missions were systematically deployed. But when you look very cautiously at how they were conducted and how their conclusions were built, it's clear that not all the attention and the integrity that was needed was always going into these processes. So these double standards is one of the things that ECOWAS is getting blamed for nowadays quite strongly. So the trio of Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso all decided to leave ECOWAS and do so in unison. And it should be noted, you know, between them, there have been five coups in three years. So for an entity that ostensibly is there to uphold good governance and democracy, you can, I suppose, see why there might be tension between those three countries and ECOWAS. But why are these countries in your mind, seeking to leave ECOWAS, which is a really, really dramatic move. It is a dramatic move. And I think it's essential to highlight this point that, you know, there have been a number of coups and regime changes, either towards more or less democracy in the broader ECOWAS region over the years. But this is the first time that three countries decide together to leave the organization. It's not actually the first time that a country decides to leave. This happened in the early 2000s with Mauritania, who decided to leave ECOWAS at that time. But this was one isolated country. In this case, we're seeing a group of three countries that have some common trends. So the three countries, Mali, Indonesia, and Burkina Faso, as you rightly mentioned, 
have all experienced military coups and are currently under military rule with no clear end in sight. Their incentives to leave the organization, I, I think, are at multiple levels. The number one is probably the intention to get rid of an organization that has been insisting on the return to constitutional rule, something that military regimes in Malinisia and Burkina Faso do not want to hear about. Their narrative, to a large extent, highlights the fact that these three countries are experiencing a security crisis and that therefore, according to them, according to these three junta's, this should be the priority and not elections. Of course, this creates a lot of tensions. I think to some extent that it also depends ECOWAS in probably a light that's not completely fair. What I mean by this is that, you know, Malinisia and Burkina have, for instance, all blamed ECOWAS for not providing support in restoring peace and security in their country, which when you look at facts is not really true. I'll give you one example. In 2013, the AFISMA, which was the first peacekeeping force deployed in Mali after the 2012 rebellion and crisis, was actually an ECOWAS-led force. It was later replaced by MINUSMA, a UN-led force that became much more known. But let's not forget that it all started with ECOWAS and that ECOWAS was willing to continue this mandate if it had been given the opportunity. Going much more far back in time, you know, ECOWAS also played a leading peacekeeping role back in the 90s in the Manu River region with the ECOMOG. So there is a number of things that the organization has been doing that are getting completely lost in translation right now, with three juntas focused on blaming the organization for not providing security support, for pushing them down with sanctions, and for according again to the juntas, not abiding by the principles of Pan-Africanism, but instead following the lead of Western countries. If at least part of the reason that Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso all decided to leave ECOWAS was to signal, you know, fairly strongly that they're not interested in a democratic transition, something that ECOWAS insists upon. Do you foresee those three countries attempting to create like a rival military junta bloc to ECOWAS? Are there efforts underway to bind those three countries together in a way that might potentially rival ECOWAS? So there are efforts underway to bind these three countries. In September 2023, they united in what is called the Alliance of Sahel States. So this is a brand new organization that brings together these three countries, Mali, Niger, and Burkina, under a common objective to restore security for themselves. But it's very difficult to see how such an organization, just in and out of itself, made up of three interland countries with no sea access, with very weak economies, with very weak human development scores, would be able to rival, really, ECOWAS on the economic side, number one, but also on the political side. I think here, the way to look at this is more that Mali, Niger, and Burkina are trying to create a different dynamic, perhaps hoping to also drag other countries of the region along with them. 
and hoping at the same time that ECOWAS will essentially weaken on its own because of its own contradictions and because of the public information and propaganda that's going on against it. So you just sort of hinted at this, but I'm interested in getting your perspective on how the exit of ECOWAS by these three countries might impact those three countries themselves. I mean, presumably it would involve losing some of the benefits of remaining in ECOWAS, which is the free movement of people across borders. Like, What might befall these countries from their decision to leave? So definitely leaving ECOWAS means forgoing most, well, if not all, of the privileges associated with ECOWAS membership. And this includes free movement of people and of goods. However, West Africa is a region where you know, we have multiple organizations kind of overlapping each other. So in the economic realm, ECOWAS is important, but we also have the West African Economic and Monetary Union, YAMU, which is the organization that brings together the eight French-speaking West African countries that share a common currency called the Franc CFA. So actually, I think the interesting move that Marie Nijran Burkinata is well taking is that although they are leaving ECOWAS, they're not actually leaving YMU. And this YMU also offers those very same guarantees of free movement for people and for good and free establishment and things like that. That's interesting. So so really it's just a political statement more than anything else, leaving ECOWAS as opposed to really putting much on the line economically, considering that they all three are still joined together in that monetary union that shares the West African franc. Exactly. So in fact, leaving ECOWAS without leaving YMU on the economic side really means that Malinija and Burkina Faso would be letting go their privileged economic relations with the English-speaking countries in West Africa, you know, like Nigeria is a big one, especially for Niger, obviously, but also Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone, the Gambia, you name it. But these are not, except for Nigeria, probably, and to some extent for Ghana in connection with Burkina Faso. Overall, most of the trading that Sahel countries are doing with their uh, counterparts on the coast is with other member states of, of Waimu. So they're not actually putting a lot on the line there. They're saving their access. So what are you looking towards next from these three countries in terms of their relationship with other countries in the region or or even more broadly with the international community? So I think it's very interesting to see how over the past, say, three, four years, starting with Mali and increasingly with Burkina Faso and, and Niger, these three countries have taken a very hard line against the so-called Western world in general and completely reshifted the partnership towards actors like Russia, even like Turkey and others. That's one thing. Um, I think, you know, looking more closely at the broader regional environment, it's interesting to see that whereas there were announcing their withdrawal from ECOWAS, Malini, Israel, and Burkina Faso were also developing their partnership with a country like Morocco, for instance, which has the access but does not have a direct border with any of them. So one thing to look at looking forward, I think, will be 
who is going to be among the winners of this redistribution of the cards, really? Who is going to be able to position itself as a new economic partner for Malinisian and Burkina for the Alliance of Sahel States countries? And what are they going to be able to gain from that? There's definitely a huge market potential in these three countries, which together make up something like a 70 million population. But this is a pretty low income population overall. So what are going to be the alternatives on the economic side is something to look at. Zooming in even a bit more, I think the type of relationship that Mali, Nigeria and Burkina Faso are having with their former fellow ECOWAS members is also quite interesting. They have been antagonizing most of ECOWAS countries, except perhaps Togo, which has been particularly lenient towards the Juntas. So is this because Togo has some particular interest in ensuring that its harbor, which makes up a huge proportion of national income, continues to be used by the interland countries, which are its main clients? Is it also because Togo is taking advantage of this crisis to reposition itself as a mediator and as a, you know, to raise its diplomatic figure on the regional seen despite being a small country? Or is it also because at the end of the day, you know, the whole notion of questioning the legitimacy of ECOWAS in the political space and whether this organization should at all be looking at democratic values is also something that plays out well for the Togolese regime, which um, is not really democratic itself. So there are several ways to look at this. And I think it's very interesting to see that, you know, in the region, various stakeholders have various ways to approach this. Two other examples I would give about the ambiguity of the other ECOWAS member states around this whole democratic promotion issue. In Benin, for instance, where, you know, the ruling of President Salon has been not completely participatory and inclusive and democratic for the first few years, we have started hearing this president suggesting that maybe ECOWAS has gone too far with the sanctions on Mali, Niger and Burkina, especially Mali and Niger, and that actually maybe ECOWAS should just go back to its initial state of a purely economic organization, which of course raises questions over, is this really a matter of lessons learning or is it a head of state preparing the ground to not be questioned when he will be breaking his own constitution at some point in the near future? The same question goes for Senegal, where recently the head of state, Macky Sall, has decided to essentially just maintain himself in power for a few extra months without consultation, essentially by postponing unilaterally the elections. I think it's fair and legitimate to wonder to what extent the weakening of ECOWAS's posture as a democracy promoter is actually turning to the advantage of several of the other heads of states in the region. That's really interesting because it brings me to one of my last questions, which is, you know, it does seem, for the reasons you described, that the weakening of ECOWAS is contributing to a trend not only in the region of democratic backsliding, but globally as well. It's just yet another symptom of the retreat of democracy around the world, this time of course, just focused in West Africa. Are there 
other broader international dynamics and implications of the weakening of ECOWAS as exemplified by the exit of these three countries that you would cite to be particularly significant to those observers outside the region? What are some of the broader global implications of this move? So trying to reframe this in a much more global light, I think, as you mentioned, you know, this is a symptom of the democratic backsliding in West Africa, but also more globally. And it's also a symptom of the return of what I would call strongman politics. You know, the notion that a good leader is a very masculine, very aggressive, security-oriented, a kind of Putin, really. And it's no wonder, I think, that countries in the Sahel starting with Mali again, but increasingly Burkina Faso as well, are getting closer and closer to Russia, either to the Russian state as such, or to private military companies like the Wagner Group, for instance, now turn into Africa Corps. So there are such dynamics going on. I think another global trend that is playing out in the region and is a correlate of this strongman politics is the backlash against gender equality as well. This is something that is affecting societies in the region and not getting nearly enough attention, if you ask me. Well, can you explain that a bit? What's the connection you see between gender equality and the strongman politics that you're seeing in those three countries? The backlash against gender equality and inclusion as key liberal values Globally, this plays out through things like massive reversals on women's rights. Typically, the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the U.S. would be an epitome example of that. Opposition to women's rights, however, should not be seen as something rendered more anecdotal. It is actually one of the fundamental common traits between the holders, the figures of these strongman politics, you know, individuals like America's Trump or Russia's Putin or Hungary's Viktor Orban have this point in common. Similarly in the Sahel, and even more so in the Sahel, where the social standard for gender equality is already quite low. In fact, the rise or return of strongman politics goes hand in hand with a disqualification of women's rights, which are perceived and presented as a Western agenda and therefore a neo-colonial agenda. So it's interesting to see how a neo-pan-African rhetoric is used here both to support the popularity of the Gentiles, but also to move out of some of these liberal values, including gender equality. Even more so, in fact, I would go a little further to mention that the very use of the term gender in the Sahel space raises suspicion of a secret Western plan to undermine morality and upset social balances by encouraging some sort of women's rebellion against men in a context where it's actually gender inequality that remains the social norm. Ultimately, gender equality and gender period are portrayed as something that will blur the lines of so-called natural authority between men and women and thereby further destructure societies and further fragilize them. So what's more, the very term of gender is routinely presented as a Trojan horse used by Western powers. Here again, this notion of a Western-owned concept that would be part of a 
neo-colonial agenda. So this term of gender, I was saying, is presented as used by Western powers to bring in not just women's rebellion, but also a tolerance to gay rights. And yet, here again, we do know that the opposition to these rights is another common point among figures of the aggressive, anti-democratic, autocratic, strongman leader figure, something that, you know, Putin, Erdogan, or Orban, or Sahel junta leaders do have in common. Arnella, thank you so much for your time, as always. I love learning from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.